This is one of those weeks where I take it that a number of our the families of the church have gone to other places, and so we're down. I kind of anticipated that today, and and so the classes, the number of students are down as well. We have a lot of children when everyone's here, and that's something I thank God for. And of course, when several families leave, uh, especially a couple of the bigger families, that really uh, cuts into the number of students. We're in Genesis 36 today. The generations of Esau. Chapter 35 ends with Isaac's death. Esau and Jacob buried him, buried their father. Uh, much really like uh, Ishmael and Isaac buried their father. It's interesting how that the that generation came to the, and the record that Moses gives in Genesis, it comes to the conclusion the same way this one does, as, as he moves from one generation to another. And so what follows here is, was true with, uh, with Ishmael and with Isaac. Ishmael's genealogy was given briefly, and then Isaac, the rest, Isaac's Isaac's life, Isaac's history was talked about. The same thing is going on here. Uh, the genealogies, or you know, there's different translations, but the genealogy, the generations, or the history—that's another way to translate the word of Esau and Jacob. And the genealogy of Esau is given, and then he sort of passes off the scene, and then we move into uh, Jacob's life, and particularly as as was pointed out last week, uh, Joseph's, um, the story of Joseph primarily for the rest of Genesis. Now, Esau's life, as it is pertinent to the main storyline of God's promise to Abraham, has been covered from chapters 25 to 35. It's not like he was just skipped over because he wasn't. There's a lot, quite a bit said about Esau in those, in those chapters at different places. But this chapter, uh, brings closure upon Esau as at least he's recorded in Genesis. I want to read, I'm not going to read every uh, verse in this chapter for sake of time, really. Um, but I'm going to be referencing various various verses, but I want to read some of it. So let's begin in, in verse 1, and, and I'll, well, you'll see what I read. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basamoth, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. And you can read about that back in chapter 28. That was referenced. Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basamoth bore Ruel. And Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. We don't know much about any of these people. They're just names to us. Basically, they probably meant a lot more to those even in Moses' day as, you know, word of mouth was passed down. They were familiar with the families as perhaps they knew more. We don't know much except the names of most of these. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. You might remember Abraham and Lot parted in a similar way. 
to this. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So God providentially worked to actually move Esau away from Jacob. So Jacob didn't really have to contend with Esau in in the land of Canaan where he dwelt. All right. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons. And so there's a repetition of some of the names that we just read in those earlier verses. So I'm not going to read all of these, but you'll notice he does say in verse 12, Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. And so that's an interesting insertion into the genealogy, which is significant for the history that, that follows. And then in verse 15 through 19, he recounts many of the same names of the genealogy, the sons who became chiefs. Okay, So they were leaders in some way. And then in verse 19, these were the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these were their chiefs. From verses 20... Through 30, there is a a rendering of the names and somewhat of a genealogy of the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land, which is the land that Esau went to, which became the land of Edom. And so skip down to verse uh, 20. Well, verse 22, the sons of Lotan were Horai and Heman. Lotan's sister was Timnah. You have these little insertions in the genealogy that have some significance and, uh, and just of relationship. Lotan's sister was Timnah. So there was some intermarrying that went on. I'm going to bring that out here in a few minutes. It's noted here. Um, you remember back in, back in verse 12, Timnah is mentioned, and so here, Lotan's sister was Timnah. And so that identifies who that person was uh, back in verse 12. These were the sons of Zibion, both Aja and Ana. This was the Ana who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father Zibion. And the old King James, I think, says uh, that they found the, the donkey or that may say ass. I don't what's the translation, those who may have the old King James. Uh, it's but there, that's a Hebrew word. It's the only time the Hebrew word is used. And so we're not sure what the word really means. OK, so there's different translations. But here, it's uh, this was the Ana who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father in Zibion. These were the children of Ana, Dishon, and Holabama, the daughter of Ana. Remember Holabama? You saw that earlier in the genealogy. So there, this may be the same Holabama. There's confusion, and I'm not going to get into all of that. But I kind of take that as part of the um, indication that there was intermarrying that went on among the various nations. And then in verses 31 through 39, you have a list of the kings of Edom. I'll speak to that here in a few moments. But um, these are just names, again, that we know very little, if anything, about. You know, one died and another reigned. One died and another reigned. Very different from the way the kings of Israel are listed. 
uh, something is said about the kings of Israel, uh, the northern and the southern tribes when they split. But here, it's just simply the names. One died, another reigned. And we don't know the time frame. Um, at least I couldn't determine the time frame of this list of, of kings. And then verses 40 through 43, it sort of wraps the chapter up, um, repeating some of the things that have been said with this emphasis. It says, according Verse 40, and these were the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their families and their places by their names. So it seems like these names actually were also identification of the place or the city, like their region was named after them or the city was named after them. Okay, so those kind of an overview of what we're looking at in this this chapter. There's a transition verse in chapter 37, verse 1. Now, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. While Esau is being talked about in verse 30, in chapter 36, and where he moved out of the land of Canaan, Jacob remained in the land of Canaan, yet not possessing him, still a stranger. He hadn't possessed the promise yet. So we'll talk about that too here in a moment. But there is a major distinction that's being drawn between Esau and Jacob's genealogy. Here And that's important to keep in mind. Honestly, if I did not believe this to be God's word, I would probably skip chapter 36 and go to something that was immediately at least more apparently valuable on the surface. You know what I mean? It's like I had somebody say, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with chapter 36. You know, well, in a a sense, I kind of felt the same way. I wonder what I'm going to do with it. Well, you know, there's a sense in when you approach it that way, it's kind of like you are the one trying to control the narrative. And we have to be careful about that. When we're reading God's word, when we're trying to control the narrative, we're, we end up making it say something it never was intended to, to say. Does that make sense? And, and so we need to be careful about that. We need to read it as it comes to us and not try to twist it and make it say something that it's not saying. So hopefully that's not going to be done. But I think there is some value in this genealogy. Think. There is value in this genealogy, but I think hopefully you'll be able to see it. By the end of the lesson, and I'll, gonna, I'm going to have to go quickly. Of course, God wouldn't have preserved it if there wasn't some value in it. The first thing is this. Esau's genealogy establishes the significance of Edom or the Edomites in Old Testament history. The details of Esau's genealogy are actually repeated in First Chronicles chapter 1, which is interesting. But it is. Ishmael's is as well. Because there was a relationship between Ishmael and Israel and between Esau and Israel or Jacob. And so they are included because there was a relationship between their peoples. And as I said, they're not as significant to us as they were for Old Testament Israel as they lived out this history. But as you read the history of the Old Testament, I think it's important for you to understand the backdrop to these people that related to Israel. Know the repetition, and I'm not going to read it, but in verses eight, uh, ver- excuse me, verses one, eight, nine, nineteen, and forty-three, you have this idea of Esau is Edom. I mean, that's repeated. That's obviously an emphasis. Esau. This is that Esau. Esau was the father of the Edomites. So that's a a repetition in the chapter. Also, you have a repetition of that phrase, the land of Edom. 
in verse 16, 17, 21, 31, the land of Edom. So it's not the Edomites and where they lived, that's significant in the history of Israel. And so this chapter establishes the origins of Edom or the Edomites who are mentioned, you might not know this, over a hundred times in the Old Testament. Edom and the Edomites. Edom is recognized for their close relation to Israel. I've, I'm going to just read scripture here because we don't have time just to, 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 to turn to all of them. But in Numbers 20 and verse 14, now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. There's a relationship there. You know all the hardship that has befallen us and so forth. They were, they were seeking passage through their territory, through the highway that went through their territory in order to get to Palestine, get to the promised land, right? And then in Amos chapter 1 and verse 11, there's another example. Uh, the, uh, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword. Cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually. And he kept his wrath forever. And so for that reason, judgment was pronounced. I might just insert this, that foes are often those of your own household. That's certainly a a practical thing we can glean from this. Edom was certainly a problem for Israel. Always. Okay. Now, eight prophets pronounce judgment on Edom. Eight different prophets pronounce judgment on Edom. And one prophet is devoted totally to pronouncing judgment. Does anybody know which one it is? Obadiah. Jeremiah does does uh, speak to it. Ezekiel. But, but Obadiah, the very first verse is the vision of Obadiah. And the rest of the 21 verses are essentially judgment upon Edom, pronouncing judgment upon Edom. And we'll reflect back upon that in a few moments. The second thing I would point out is that Edom was the result, the nation Edom, Edom or the Edomites were the result of Esau's decision and influence. Esau. He married women from idolatrous nations in verses 2 and 3. I mean, this is pointed out. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. And you remember, that was a grief to his parents. And Esau's marriages aligned him with nations that God would drive out of Canaan. You notice the word Hittite and Hivite? In Deuteronomy 7 and verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and then others, and then the Hivites are listed in that verse. Seven nations greater and mightier than you. Also, his offspring intermarried with the Horites. And I pointed that out already in verse 12, Timnah, the concubine of Eliphaz. Esau's son, she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. The Amalekites became a thorn in the side of Israel. We'll look at that here in a moment. It seems like the Amalekites, and I think this is why it's worded this way, was a, she was a concubine. 
And there was an offspring of the concubine, which actually probably they, they, he was looked down upon. And so he went, he separated himself from Edom and became the Amalekites instead of the Edomites, but still tracking to Esau. And they lived in the land of Seir that Esau eventually possessed. You see that in verse 8. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Another the mountain range, that region. Esau is Edom. And then verse 21, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. Also, Esau's prosperity is noted as a reason for his separation from Jacob in Canaan. We read that in verses 6 through 8. Now, who gave Seir, Mount Seir, to Esau? Answer? Who establishes the boundaries of the nations? God gave. And, and this is exactly what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and command the people saying, you are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Because we could say a whole lot of things about this. I'm not, I'm not going with all of my thoughts here, just trying to stay within the time frame we have. Do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. By the way, if God blesses your unregenerate family members, give thanks to God for that. Esau was blessed. God gave him verses 21 and 22. I'll just read verse 22. Just as he had done for the descendants of Esau, he did for Israel, who dwelt in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them, they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place even to this day. Now, there's no evidence that Esau or his descendants ever acknowledged the God of his father. The God of his father, meaning the God of of Isaac, Abraham and Isaac. In fact, all through the Old Testament, they are presented as hostile to Israel and Jehovah. I'm talking about the descendants, the Edomites. And so this chapter emphasizes the rise of Esau's family to prominence in the region of Mount Seir. His sons and grandsons are named, a number of which became chiefs or tribal princes, which is what is meant by Chiefs, or in the old King James, it's dukes. These were the dukes. Those are the heads of the tribe, tribal princes. They overtook the Horites, which are listed in verses 20 through 30. And there was the establishing of the kings among them in verses 31 through 39. I think it's interesting maybe to note a reference to one of these kings in Solomon's day who was of that name, I'll just read 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 14. So this is hundreds of years later. 1 Kings 11, verse 14. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. Now you're going to read the name Hadad in Genesis 36. Not the same. Hadad. 
It's a descendant, though, of this Hadad. He was a descendant of the king in Edom. First Kings 11, 14. That's one of the confusing things about genealogies and names in the Old Testament is sometimes you think you're reading, you, know, you see a name, it's a familiar name, and it's, it's not. For example, Eliphaz the Temite, Temanite. Where do, you re, where do you read the name Eliphaz? Job. In Job. He was one of Job's counselor friends, right? And he was a Temanite. Probably not the same Eliphaz here, but related. Now, he may have been the same Eliphaz. Uh, but you see, there are names that get passed down in family lineages. But there is definitely a relationship because it is Eliphaz and is Teman or the Temanite. So there is Teman is mentioned in Esau's genealogy. So Moses later compared Edom's dominance of Seir to Israel's of Canaan when he he said in Deuteronomy 2 verse 12, the Horites formerly dwelt in Seir and the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. All right, let's shift here. What does Esau's genealogy and the things that we've sort of quickly passed over here, what does it remind us of? And there, I think there are several truths, and I'm not mentioning all the things, but there are several truths that I think that we can glean from the genealogy, especially as we look at this genealogy as the baseline for what follows in the Old Testament in the history of Esau's lineage or his descendants or the Edomites. First, I would suggest this. Esau is representative of the children of the world who prosper in this life while the children of promise live by faith waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise to them. Or you might say, waiting for the prosperity that has been promised to them. In chapter 35, in verse 11, also God said to him, Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. He didn't say that to Esau. He said it to Jacob. And yet, who is the first to receive those kinds of blessings? It was Esau. Not Jacob. In fact, Moses points this out in chapter 36 and verse 11. Now, these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Promise had been given to Abraham that kings would come forth from him. In chapter 17 and verse 6, kings would come forth. And of course, they did. And they did for Israel as well, eventually. In fact, Moses is, um, I mean, there's a, there's a, uh, the word, well, I'm not going to go there. All right. Esau's family possessed 
the region of Mount Seir, they grew and they prospered. Where was Jacob? During that time of Esau's or the Edomite prosperity, where was Jacob? He was still a stranger in the land of Canaan. And his descendants endured affliction in Egypt. Right? When the Edomites were prospering. In fact, Israel received the promise, the land of promise, four to five hundred years later. That's a long wait. I mean, we know from Hebrews 11 that Abraham didn't receive the promise. Jacob didn't really receive the promise. Right? They, they received it by faith. And they waited. And of course, we know they will they will actually with their own eyes see it as they, with all of the meek, will inherit the earth. Right? But, it may have been tempting to envy the prosperity of Edom, don't you think? Or for us to envy the world who in temporal ways are blessed above the true Israel of God. And this is where some people, you know, in their minds, they say, we're king's kids. We should be richer than everyone. Oh, really? Is that the message of God to us? Now, we are richer than all of the world, but it's not necessarily with the same nature of riches. Right? That the world perceives as true prosperity. But the rest of the story is certainly far less desirable for Edom than for God's covenant people, His promised people. Remember Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 8. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. Think about that. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. One of the problems with Edom, and it's pointed out in the prophets, we're not going to look at it all, but pride was always a problem. For those who were a, nemes, were a thorn in the side of Israel, pride was always an issue that God then brought destruction and judgment upon those nations. In fact, one, at one point, one of the, prophet, the Lord said to one of the prophets, listen, if, if they had done what they had done without fill, being filled up with pride, I would not have brought this destruction upon them. Pride is such an issue. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The proud in spirit. I want it now. i got to have it now. I deserve it now. You owe me now. Kind of a, I know you promised it, but I'm tired of waiting. Kind of a spirit. And there's nothing wrong with issuing a, a complaint. A, I call it a holy complaint to God. If He's promised something, to put that before Him. You promised this. And I'm anticipating because of who you are. A reception of that promise. There's nothing wrong with speaking to him that way. But that's a far cry from the proud, arrogant, complaining and murmuring. That, of course, the nation of Israel was, was noted for. In Psalm 37, we are reminded not to envy the wicked who prosper now. Psalm 37, I'll just read three verses. The whole chapter really is devoted to this. Verses 34 to 36, wait on the Lord and keep his way and he he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. 
I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a like a native green tree. The old King James says a green bay tree. I can't read that without thinking about something else. Green Bay tree. I have seen the wicked in great power. Excuse me, verse 36. Yet he passed away and behold, he was no more. Brother, brethren, that's Edom. When you follow their their history, I indeed, indeed I sought him, but he could not be found. Edom's end was destruction. Obadiah, as we've said, is devoted to that. The inheritance of the promised seed, though, the inheritance of the promised seed is life. Life now and life forever when the meek shall inherit the earth. And so the spiritual heritage of Jacob exists even today. And we are those who walk by faith, right? Just like Jacob, just the faith of our father Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You know, we, we wait upon the Lord and we, we live with that hopeful anticipation of what he has promised to us, even while some that are close to us prosper, perhaps even in their wickedness, their prosper, they seem to be prospering. Just remember, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. Okay. Another truth that I'm reminded of, Esau's heritage represents the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the promised seed. Remember in Genesis 3, it started out this way. I mean, God said there's going to be enmity between your seed and her seed, right? And that's the seed of promise. And you can see this this theme all through the Old Testament, this enmity that exists, and you see it. In the enmity that existed between Edom and Israel, the seed, we might say, at least representative, the seed of the serpent and the seed of promise. Not that every descendant of Esau was of the devil. I believe there were converted ones among those. In fact, um, you know, well, I'm not going to try to uh, defend that statement right now, but uh, nor was every descendant of of Jacob. A true child, right? So it's not. That's not. I'm going to close with a with a thought on that point in a few minutes. But his lineage, Esau's lineage, was antagonistic toward God's old covenant, Old Testament covenant people, through whom the promised seed, the salvation of the world, would come. You see, that people Israel had to, as you've heard in the lessons in Genesis, had to stay together. God, and that's one of the purposes of the law to come is to keep this this people an identifiable people in the world until the seed came. But there was antagonists driven by by the serpent, Satan himself and a seed warring against that promise. While Esau seemed to have a good relationship to Jacob, pause, it is possible to have a good relationship with unbelieving family members. Okay? I mean, Jacob and Esau had their, had their rift, but you've seen it in the lessons. They came back together. And who was at the burial of their father? They were. They were there. It's interesting how funerals sometimes bring feuding 
parties together in a good way. Sometimes not, but sometimes that happens. It is possible to have a relationship, a decent relationship with unbelieving family members, but the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, were not, did not relate well. We have mentioned the Amalekites. In Exodus chapter 17, when Israel was coming out of Egypt and they approached a place called Rephidim. And you remember in Rephidim, the Amalekites, there was a, there was a conflict with the Amalekites. And uh, that was the time when, when uh, Moses uh, had his hands lifted up by Aaron and Hur. Do you remember the battle that was going on in the valley? That's the account here. And chapter 17 of Exodus verse 8, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And there would be a continual conflict. They show up later. In fact, the Lord pronounced judgment upon Amalek and said he would blot them out from under heaven. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, many years later, Samuel said to Saul, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. So they still existed then. For what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came out, came up from Egypt. He was referring to the battle that took place at Rephidim. So they were the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God, the enemies of his people. You remember that Edom refused to give Israel passage as Moses led them to Canaan. This is recorded in Numbers chapter 20 and verses 17 through 21. I'm not going to read all of the verses, but as they made their way, they asked, ask nicely, please. I mean, they summoned, please let us go through your country. Let us follow the highway. We're, we're, we're not going to take anything. We're not going to, we're not going to take your water, your food. We're nothing. We're not going to ask anything from you. But Edom said, Edom said, that's, that's, that's what Numbers 20 verse 18 says. Edom said, Esau, who was Edom, said, you shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. You shall not pass through, they repeat in verse 20. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Do you remember Doeg? Do you remember who Doeg is? That's that fellow who was, you know, uh, with the priests of Ahimelech. Ahimelech? Ahimelech, is that right? Ahimelech. And, uh, and when he saw what David there and Saul came and he's trying to find out what went on and Doeg spoke out against David. You remember that? And Doeg is the one who killed the priests. Do you know who Doeg was? Doeg the Edomite. David wrote a psalm, Psalm 52, devoted to that incident. Doeg the Edomite and the destruction, the awful Awful disaster that came to those priests of the living God. Later on, in a year about 850 B.C., under King Jehoram, we read these words. Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. Thus, Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. Second Chronicles 21, verses 8. And ten. This was a fulfillment of Isaiah's, uh, excuse me, of Isaac's prophecy 
when when uh, Esau asked for a blessing, um, Isaac pronounced a blessing. But one of the things he says is, is at some point you're going to get restless and you're going to revolt, essentially. And this is the fulfillment of that in Genesis 27 and verse 40 is where that prophecy was and it was fulfilled. And then finally, when Babylon invaded Jerusalem in about 587 or so B.C., Edom is noted as a cheering onlooker and maybe even a participant. Psalm 137 and verse 7 says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very fountain. They were cheering Babylon on in the destruction of Jerusalem. And then in Obadiah, verses 10 through 14, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. This is a a prophecy of judgment upon Edom. And you shall be cut off forever in the day that you stood on the other side. In the day that strangers carried captive his forces. When foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity. Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. And so on and so forth. I'm not going to keep reading. But you see, the point is, they were not only onlookers, but it seemed like a participant even. Proud participants. Oh, but God protected his old covenant people against Edom as he did other antagonistic nations, driven, no doubt, by the serpent, that enemy fighting against the promised seed, their destructive intentions, and repeatedly God pronounced severe judgment upon them. And I I won't read the multiple references there are to that. Edom would not, could not prevent God's promised seed coming through Israel. It's one of the things that stands out as you read the Old Testament. Listen, God is a Redeemer God. Nothing's going to stop Him from redeeming. Nothing. You understand that? Nothing. No enemy is great enough to prevent Him from redeeming. He's the Redeemer God. And Old Testament history demonstrates that. Over and over again. And the judgments that he pronounces weren't just judgments for judgment's sake. They were judgments oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes upon those very people who were whose intentions were to prevent what God had ordained. Jacob's lineage led to Christ, the seed. Esau's lineage served as an instrument of the end. Antagonist against the promised. And you may agree or disagree with this, but I am, I am inclined to think that this is at least a reason that in Malachi, the Lord says, I hated that he, Malachi says he hated Esau, who is Edom, right? Jacob have I loved. 
Esau have I hated. And then you keep reading and you'll see the judgment that's pronounced upon Edom. And I believe this to be one of the reasons. In other words, God doesn't just God doesn't just hate for the sake of hating. God hates any attempt in this case. I realize it's a bigger subject than just this. But God hates any attempt of mortal man to stand in the way of his promised salvation. This is really an example of, we won't get to it today really in our Matthew passage, but anyone who is an offense and a stumbling block stands in the way of someone coming to Christ. There's an application here. God hates that. And He hates those who are the perpetrators of of that kind of activity. The attempts of Edom certainly provoked God's fury. And you read that word over and over again in in the prophets. It wasn't just Edom that did that. Others as well. Of course, it was expressed in the This fury was expressed in the numerous prophecies against Edom. And then finally, one more point. Esau, who is Edom, represents unrepentant sinners who live for this world and neglect the Redeemer God to their own ultimate judgment. You can see that in Esau's Lineage. Edomites, as a group, followed in the steps of their father, Esau, whom Hebrews describes as a fornicator or godless, profane person that did not find repentance in his heart as he sought a blessing from Isaac. He was seeking a blessing, but he wasn't seeking God. He wasn't interested in the God of his father. He was interested in possessions. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it. And I... I don't believe he's talking about the seeking the repentance. He sought the blessing. He sought it diligently with tears. But there was no godly sorrow there. There was no true repentance going on with Esau. And with all of the harsh judgments pronounced against Edom and the prophets, it might seem that all hope was lost for any descendants of Esau. In fact, you read some of the statements of judgment, you would think, well, there's there's simply no hope. But I'm going to remind you of something. You read some of the statements that God spoke of His own covenant people, and you would think there was no hope for any descendant of Israel. Right? But there is mercy with God. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which was fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And I think that's to be understood spiritually, not talking about literally. 
But Christ himself being that temple, being that tabernacle who was destroyed and raised, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Do you hear hope there? For a remnant of Edom? And do you hear hope for Gentiles like you and me? Interesting that the Messiah ministered to some who came to him from a place called, a region called Edomia. Mark chapter 3 verse 8. Do you know what Edomia? Edomia is Edom. It was a region that many believe a remnant of Edomites settled. Now the land of Seir, it was, that was destroyed. And, and, but there seems like there was a remnant that escaped and went further east to this region that was then called Edomia. And it seems like, at least, and I'm not, hopefully not reading too much into it, but I'm taking that from Amos and comparing it with that and saying, it seems that God had a remnant even from that portion of the Gentiles that he would redeem. And of course, today, what do we think? To, what are we to think today? How important is genealogy today? In relation to God, I would say that the one genealogy that matters is Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The promised seed came, and all who are believers in Him are counted as the Israel of God. Whether your lineage traces back to Jacob, Esau, Ishmael, or another unknown Gentile, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're part of that seed. You're part of that promise, that covenant people. So that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, just like Edom, just like Esau. Having no hope and without God in the world. By the way, without God is the translation of the word atheos. Does that sound like atheist to you? Without God. In the world. I had a young man asking me about atheists this week, so I just thought I'd bring that up. Yeah, there are those who are without God in that sense. Atheists in that sense. Atheists. But, 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 now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what mattered for Old Testament Israel and what mattered from Jehovah's vantage point in the unfolding of redemptive history 
the plan of salvation for his chosen race is now history. That's Old Testament. It's history. Significant, but it's history. It is representative to us of God's providential ordering of all things for the salvation of his people, as well as judgment upon all who remain, as Esau, in an unrepentant condition. Hopefully, hopefully you see that there is some benefit that can come from at least thinking a little more, maybe deeply or a little more broadly about the genealogies that are given in Scripture. Father, I thank you for...